at the beginning of why I was going to say that. Oh, the connection with psychotherapy with or without meditation. I was happy to have done the therapy beforehand and be meditating secondarily. Um, first of all, I knew how to talk to myself as if I were my therapist when, uh, when difficult things came up. And um, I wasn't so frightened that some of the more, some of the things that came up in my mind of a somewhat bizarre nature. I had enough experience with bizarre thinking that uh, to not be frightened that that was what was happening. Uh, I think that if people are not meditators and they work with a sensible, sensitive and sensible therapist, that that therapist can hold the same context of space and balance for people's memories over and over again that a meditation retreat can. That being a sensitive therapist and holding a place of uh, loving and gentle regard, not even too, not, I was going to say not even too interventional, maybe minimally interventional. Holding the space is enough so that people can, in some amount of safety, play out their movies, that the, in dialogue or in community, because it's not even so much dialogue with a pretty quiet, non-interventional therapist, in community with someone who helps you hold the space, maybe it, it, it um, creates a space similar to the space in the mind in meditation. Feel I'm safe here. Meditation retreat is a pretty safe place. Context of Dharma is pretty safe. We live in a safe community. There's an aura of safety in it. You don't have to go back on the job that second. Maybe being in therapy is quite like that if you trust your therapist to be able to say whatever and be whoever. What do you think? Probably everybody here has been in therapy. I don't know that that's true, but the generally held East Coast myth about West Coast people. <laughs> so I'm not going to say a show of hands. It's just that everybody thinks it. <laughs> you know, it would be more, it's a, this is one of those communities where it would not be embarrassing to raise your hand if I said who here has been in therapy. It would be only embarrassing for the people who haven't been. <laughs> so we won't do it. <laughs> But that, I think, is one of the connections. If you make a loving space, a loving, absolutely secure space for people to tell themselves the truth, and you as well, about their inner experience and their recollection of it. What do you think of that? Does that make sense to you? Yeah. doesn't need me to add anything to that. Um, 
I'm just adding this aloud because I'm thinking it myself. Um, so I'm sure I've understood, because there's a way in which I'd like very much to remember to say that I think when we are with someone in which, with, in a space in which we do not need to speak, nor they, the, the, um, the understanding is everything is okay, nothing is required. Um, and I see you. You know, we haven't either of us fallen asleep. But it's all right just as it is. Um, it's all right just as it is. Is one of those sentences. I just said it accidentally, so to speak, accidentally. But it turns out to be... My friend Joseph Goldstein said uh, at one point, he said his favorite mantra in meditation for uh, keeping his practice going which he says he says to himself quite a lot is it's okay that's it that's the mantra it's okay whatever it is it's i think when we think about myself it's so much a question of am i startled or am i at ease am i startled or am i at ease i think we're always i am always feeling (gasps) or i'm at ease and it's okay it's all right when things happen that we do not expect, which is mostly everything that we notice, if we expected it, we wouldn't notice. You know, we're startled to one degree or another. Say, oh, that's not what I expected, but you know, that's why we're noticing it. You know, when you drive your car, you don't notice every single thing. We operate heavy machinery on big highways at a high speed, and we're not noticing every second. Only when something car pulls out in front of us, then we notice because it was unexpected. Otherwise, we could be remembering the lyrics to an old song, or planning Thanksgiving dinner, or doing whatever and driving, and the and the it just goes. When something happens, it startles us. It's because we didn't expect it. Yes. My son, I said a Zen teacher, told him that faith is when there is no one with whom you want to convert. Hmm. Faith is when there was no one with whom you want to converse. I like that a lot. What's your name? Sally. 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 Thank you. <laughs> I'm also thinking about the uh, way in which in the meditation literature, Faith is what is revealed when doubt is absent. Doubt is absent when the mind is steady. So you can call it back as an equation. Yeah. <laughs> and then lately, maybe 
in our existence. All of a sudden, that contentment that you talked about just comes very easily when I'm still. And that space of not having to run to someone is that not having to protect, mm-hmm. um, you know, like uh, the tree falling in the forest does everyone hear. Mm-hmm. It's like I don't need that validation. Mm-hmm. I just fall into and the, the thing that it seems very important to take from that, I love that two-year-old takes a nap and then it gets up and it's much better to work with, um, is uh, the the shift between the kinds of questions we ask, like why me, why now, what if, uh, as opposed to what needs to be done right now. What needs to be done right now we can easily figure out, because you know, it's right clear to us. And the other stuff is more or less philosophizing. Why me? Why now? Why Suppose, I, sometimes I think about those kinds of questions. Why me? Why now? What does it mean that? And I think to myself, suppose we knew. You know? <laughs> suppose we said, why me? And a voice boomed out of the sky and said, because eight lifetimes ago you did this or that or the other. What difference would it make? <laughs> I've been thinking about that just because there was, and we are going to stand up, right, in five minutes, Uh, just because recently there was, (laughs) there was a cartoon in the New Yorker that you may have seen. I I, I like cartoons very much, and uh, so I've been reading New Yorker cartoons for 40 or 50 years, and uh, you know that there's a certain cartoon that shows up with regularity, and it's a variation of uh, the scene in which a spiritual aspirant has climbed up to the top of the mountain, and there is a spiritual teacher sitting at the mouth of a cave, and uh, the caption is always the answer that the spiritual teacher is giving to the spiritual aspirant. And um, you can tell by inference that the question has been, what's the meaning of life? Because the caption is usually, life is a river, or life is a test, or um, life is an opportunity. Or, uh, this last one in the, one of the April New Yorkers of this year, the the caption said, uh, "If I knew the meaning of life, why would I be sitting here in my underpants?" <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and it's a great cartoon because I think what it puts. First of all, I think about it, I think, goodness, you know, I, I can't tell that too many places. I have so many friends who've sat in caves for long periods of time <laughs> for whom I have the greatest respect. So, <laughs> so I, I really can't tell that in a public place. Don't tell anybody I said that. Uh, <laughs> but the, uh, the reason I think it's funny is not that, you know, sitting in a cave is, I mean, some of the great Buddhist teachers of legends sat in caves. Great spiritual teachers in all the legends and in all the traditions, come to think of it, either spent months in deserts or on mountaintops or in caves or in seclusion, that's fine. It doesn't have to do with that. It has to do with the fact that I think it's the wrong question. What's the meaning of life, I think, is not the right question. I think the question is, what should we do? What should we do? You know, suppose a voice boomed out from heaven and said it's a river, it's a test, it's a this, it's a that, it's an opportunity. Then what? Yeah? 
But what, what shall we do when we are frightened? What shall I do if um, there isn't going to be enough energy to sustain eight billion people on the planet in another hundred years, and some of them will be my great-grandchildren and yours? What should we do about that? And not get mad. What should we do now when the people we love the most, we hurt their feelings and they're unhappy and we're unhappy? How are we going to figure out how not to do that? What should we do about the fact that half of the people in the world don't have enough to eat? What should we do about that? So, really, the question is wrong. What's it about? And I think that it doesn't move it out of the realm of spiritual questions. I think it is the religious question. Really, how are we going to serve each other? I mean, and it comes out of the realization that it's all of us always, that uh, the sense of me or my is a... Is a misperception. It's us. And how are we going to do this together? So I never did get around to telling you about the four Brahma Viharas, but now it is 11 o'clock. So I would like to propose the following. Where is Rasita? Um, uh-huh. Is she coming back? Do you know when? <laughs> All right. Um, well, Rasita is our uh, resident yoga teacher. Normally she does a half hour of body movement at this. We're going to do it. She'll be distressed if she's not, though, so let's see. Let's see what we can do. What I really do feel obliged to do is to have us do a 10-minute break so we can go to the bathroom. This is what I'd like to ask you to do, please, before you rush up to do it. I'd like us to do this 10-minute break in silence, please. So let's just go to the bathroom, get a drink of water, and come back. I want to teach a little bit more, um, just going back to the, um, the, the an explanation of the Brahma Viharas, just to make sure that we at least put it in. It came up several times this morning about uh, uh, doing what needs to be done. I want to take as a premise, I want to state axiomatically, I think it's in the nature of the human heart when it isn't confused or frightened or bewildered or too tired to respond compassionately, wisely and compassionately. In fact, when you talk about um, the, uh, uh, the fruit or the point or the goal of mindfulness practice, it's usually um, it's usually uh, uh, spoken of as wisdom, and when you talk about the goal of uh, metta practice, loving kindness practice, it's it's spoken of as uh, compassion. And sometimes people talk about the twin wings of the Dharma, and so the Dharma flies on the double wings of wisdom and compassion. 
In fact, I think that wisdom and compassion are the same thing, that uh, when wisdom is present, compassion is the outward manifestation of it, uh, what happens in action. How why it's how wisdom expresses itself in action. There's a way in which when I talk when I think about the Brahma Viharas, the four Brahma Vihara, the word Brahma Vihara is two words. A Vihara is a is a is a place to live. Like if you say to somebody, Where did you stay when you stayed in Bodh Gaya? They say, uh, they say, I stayed in the Burmese Vihara. It means I just stayed in, you know, in the Burmese house, in the tourist house of the Burmese, that the Burmese have. So Vihara is a plain word. It just means a dwelling place. And Brahma means uh, godlike or divine. So when you say uh, a Brahma Vihara, they are divine places to live, very nice places to stay. And... Uh, uh, if you uh, have ever been up at the uh, residential part of the facility or stayed up there, notice that we have four residence buildings and they have names. And they are Metta, Karuna, Mudita, and Upeka, which are the four divine places to stay. Uh, we actually have very nice residence halls, but they're not divine. They're just <laughs> really nice. <laughs> but um, the... Um, the teaching on the Brahma Viharas, I best understand this way. Um, they're often taught as four different states of mind, and I think they're three different states of mind. I think they are metta, karuna, and mudita, loving kindness, compassion, and sympathetic joy. And I think that they all come out of equanimity and wisdom and are a reflection of it. Matter of fact, I, uh, I visually, when I think about them, uh, think of the mind as uh, the, a great space. And often, I, 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 in truth, I picture it as a great bowl, but a bowl wouldn't be the right thing. But a great space of equanimity and balance and openness where everything is seen, nothing is discarded, everything is held in balance, uh, nothing clouds the view, and so clear seeing and uh, balance um, of mind that comes from clear seeing, really wisdom, from knowing it can't be any other way. Somebody in this little break, oh, I guess it was June, I met in the back and I said, how are you? And she said, I couldn't be better. And it's a kind of a um, password that we have in the uh, Wednesday morning class. We have sort of an understanding that like secret societies that have secret passwords that they say to each other. The secret society, the password of that secret society, which you could join this Wednesday, it's not that secret, <coughs> is I couldn't be better. Because the truth is, however we are, we couldn't be at any time better. You know, usually it means I'm in the pink, or you know, I, my life is wonderful, everything is great. But... Uh, it's just, it just means I couldn't be better. If we could, we would at any given time. You know, that, uh, nobody purposely plans to suffer. I couldn't be better. And it's a really good way to say because then we don't really hold ourselves in, um, 
responsible for the fact that we're not something else. I hold myself responsible. It's one of the pitfalls that I fall into quite frequently. You know, I, I'm not doing so well over something. I get I get caught in a trap of suffering. I see that I've got caught in the trap. See that I've put my hand in it or my neck in it or my foot in it, and that I am in fact pulling the rope that is making it worse. And I think to myself, you just have not given up clinging. If you gave up this, if you let it go, you'd be free. But it's a very bad idea to say to somebody, uh, just let go. I mean, if we could, we would. Nobody purposely suffers, you know. It's a, it's, a, it's, not, it's not kind. It hurts people's feelings if you say, you know, you're just hogging on to this. Just let it go. Uh, you can't, you know, and even you see yourself doing it. You can't let it go. You just let go. If I could, I would. And then I give myself a bad time. That I'm not. Well, I think I have to, I have to update that. I used to give myself a bad time. That I'm not. I'm very much better about it. When I see myself in trouble and in worse trouble because I'm giving myself a bad time because of the trouble, I, most of the time now, I'm able to be fairly compassionate about it. And look at that, you know, look what you're doing, Sylvia. You're struggling, you're suffering about it, you're making it worse, you, you see it, and you're stuck with it. You can't do anything about it, all your fancy spiritual tricks. It'll go away when it's ready to go away, or it'll go, ready, it'll go away when you stop struggling with it. Nothing to do but have compassion, maybe it'll soon go away. And then it goes away. But to be able to see really that we're as well as we can be, always, couldn't be better. Because it makes us so compassionate about other people. Everybody's as good as they can be. They couldn't be better. There's no point in being mad at anybody. Even if they're being very disagreeable, they couldn't be better. We could see that. Okay, that's the place of equanimity. If we lived in that place of equanimity, or when we live in that place of equanimity, then in our normal going around the world, and this is the Brahma Vihara teachings, but it's also my experience as well, so you see if it's yours. In the normal going around the world, you meet people who, just in, in uh, a normal way, that you might call a neutral circumstance. You don't know them one way or the other way, like them or dislike them. My sense is that we're generally good-spirited people. We meet people that we don't know one way or another way. We wish them well. That benevolence is really what we're designed to offer to people. If we ourselves are not beleaguered or frightened or confused or under siege, we're pretty kind. Like I think nobody goes to school to take kindless lessons or friendliness lessons. We all know how to do that. That's what metta is. You know, it's a, a loving kindness is a strange word, uh, only found in uh, Victorian prayer books, as far as I can tell, and, uh, you know, with a verb that you also find in Victorian prayer books, vouchsafe. No idea what it means, vouchsafe. Vouchsafe for your loving kindness. You know, it's very strange. I th actually, metta comes from the Pali uh, stem, the same word that means friend in Pali. It's actually friendliness practice, um, good-heartedness practice. Benevolence practice would be better than loving-kindness practice. 
I think that's what we do naturally as people. I think also what we do naturally as people when we are not uh, compromised, when we are okay, when we are living in some place of equanimity, is I think we're genuinely compassionate and just reflexively compassionate. But if we meet people, even people we don't know, but people in difficult circumstances, I think what happens is that the heart leaps up in compassion. You see people in a difficult circumstance. Does this happen to you? You go to sh- in, in some public place and you see someone struggling in some way, um, some person not able to get around as well as other people, or people take ill in a public place, or people are homeless and it's obvious that they need care. Anything that happens when you see it in, in live or on television, or even in a movie, we feel we're moved, we cry about it, it touches us. We hear about it, someone else tells us a story about somebody else, it touches us. On Wednesday, last Wednesday morning, um, when we sit here on Wednesday mornings, we often have, uh, we always have a period of meditation for about 40 minutes. And then often at the end of it, I'll mention the name of perhaps somebody I'm thinking about who needs special prayers, somebody might need special prayers of healing. And I'll say, I'm thinking about my friend so-and-so who such and such happened to. I really think it's important to, uh, uh, when we share prayer about that, to have uh, people know something about it. If you say, I'm thinking about my friend Tom, I, I don't think it does the same as if I think, if they say, I'm thinking about my friend Tom, whose um, uh, twin brother has just uh, been diagnosed with cancer and he's feeling so upset. and. Um, his brother Jerry is in Boston, so could we think about Tom's brother Jerry in Boston who's been diagnosed with cancer? And then somebody else, somewhere in the room, because we'll all have eyes closed, I'll say, well, I'm thinking about my next-door neighbor Maggie, whose child has just uh, run away from home, or I'm thinking about my uh, mother-in-law, Jean, who has just been diagnosed with a brain tumor. And last Wednesday particularly, there are probably about as many people in class. And it just went on for a really long time. And um, it, it was as if we were listening to the um, all of the, the permutations, all the varieties of uh, difficulties that flesh is heir to and spirit is heir to. And uh, you don't know all those people because you're not to them last names. And you don't know them, but and you don't even know who's speaking. You don't know if the person who's saying it is somebody that you know and have a particular relationship to. But all of a sudden, you hear about somewhere, somebody in Terre Haute, Indiana, is having this difficulty, and your heart is moved. You really feel touched by it. Maybe because, maybe because, I don't know that person in Terre Haute, Indiana, who's having that difficulty, but I know somebody else with prostate cancer, or somebody else with Parkinson's, or somebody else with diabetes, or someone else who didn't expect that uh, their, uh, uh, they suddenly would lose their job, or somebody else who didn't expect that their child who had been sober for 10 years would suddenly be in trouble again. We know somebody with every story. 
And somehow our connection to uh, understanding pain that comes through our own heart works. We're connected to people, but that, that sense of compassion, feeling with another person, happens out of the experience of our own heart. If there's enough equanimity so that it stays steady with it. If there's not enough equanimity in the heart, what happens is we stay away from it. We say, oh, well, that's happening to that person. Thank goodness it's not happening to me. And and we don't feel close. We don't feel touched. We feel, when are they going to finish with this? They're going on too long. Why are we sitting here so long? What good does this do? Who's this good for? The mind makes all kinds of other stories. The heart is fairly relaxed. The mind is resting. We're tremendously compassionate. And then we talked afterwards about um, th- this particular Wednesday, uh, I think because the list went on so long, th- there was a quite a big discussion afterwards about whether uh, prayer uh, works. Uh, and uh, this is not maybe the time to discuss it, because you know, you know as well as I the various um, researches that people are doing these days about whether prayer works. But the parameter of figuring out whether it works in those researches is do people get better, does their health improve? And the parameter that I was holding for myself, am holding for myself, I certainly hope, I, I certainly am happy to think that prayer might make people better. I like to think that. I also think that if I bring my attention to how many people there are and to pray for, it will m- remind me about um, how fragile life is and how at any moment any of our relationships might be compromised and how it's such a call to keep all of my relationships um, carefully that um, The the the, uh, the expression that comes to mind is when people say, you know, normally we get along very well, but I just ran out of patience, and so I screamed at him. And I think to yourself, I think to myself, if I knew really about how fragile it all is, we're not out of patience with people we love. We'd wait and we'd wait and we'd wait. We get this moment only to respond either in love or in irritability or impatience. And once we've done one or the other, we don't get that moment again. So it's such a teaching to me about ultimately operating from a place of benevolence. Maybe they all come back to benevolence. Looks like compassion is compassion, not benevolence, but actually if we did that compassion carefully enough, it would come back to benevolence. And then the third of the Brahma Vihara is mudita is um, the other valence. We can either meet people who are neutral to us, or we can meet either in person or by story people in difficult circumstances, and then compassion comes up. Or we can meet people in person or in difficult circumstances who are having some great uh, good fortune at that time. How many people here bought a lottery ticket yesterday? I did too. <laughs> it was just a thing that everybody did. I got two lottery tickets, as a matter of fact. Um, 
And we talked about what we would do if we won. Yeah? Talked about it with my grandchildren and made a big teaching about what would you do with it if you won. And so, anyway, uh, I don't know if somebody won. Did, did somebody win? Hmm? Someone in San Jose won. No. The truth, which is the truth, is everything's going to happen. It's going to happen in its time, not because I want it to. That's really the piece of wisdom. Wishing will not make it so. When, when the conditions are right, things will happen. Of course, if you say that to somebody, you know, um, if it's meant to be, it'll be. That's one of those other things that people like to say to each other. Well, if it's meant to be, then it'll be. But that doesn't sit well if uh, you really need it to be now. It doesn't make you feel any better. Because then it's, it's, you might be thinking, well, if it's not meant to be, I could just be in this grief forever that it's not happening. So it really requires a kind of wisdom that really you can't decide to have. You can't get up and say, tomorrow, I am going to have such a deep understanding and trust of karma that I'm going to really be able to rest in the world. I think somebody said it before, staying quietly with being able to trust, or as Sally said about faith, being able to trust. Maybe that is the final thing about faith, and not being afraid, is that you can trust that the truth is we're not any of us in charge. We can't make things happen however much we want them to. Everything makes things happen. You can't know what causes and conditions will happen. It's really uh, one of the, karma is one of the four imponderables that the Buddha talked about. And to be able to say, I just don't know. But it's all right not knowing. And the other piece of wisdom would be to know, I have two choices here. I can rejoice wholeheartedly in this other person's good fortune, in which case I share the pleasure of rejoicing, or I can hang on to my little piece of irritability and envy about what it is that I haven't got. Sometimes you can know that and not give up your little piece of irritability and envy anyway, much as you'd like to. But then you, it still comes back on compassion. You say, look at this. If I could give up this envy, I'd be peaceful. But I can't. So it's like um, one of the metaphors that um, is, uh, the Buddha often used had to do with getting uh, stabbed by a, uh, a, a dagger. And he said, it's like someone stabs you with a dagger, and then you keep stabbing yourself afterwards. You stab yourself a few more times. You could just pull out the dagger and stop stabbing, or you could continue to stab yourself, which is what we mostly do. And we say, ah, I wish it was me. Why isn't it me? It could be me. It's not me yet, is the piece of equanimity. And it might not be, in which case I could at least stop stabbing. You know, there's no rule. You know, why not me? Why I can't have this? Well, why me? You know, it's the karma of things, but which would require us saying, really, that things are so well beyond our understanding and our control, 
And they're not a matter of punishment or um, reward. I think that the karma stories that you often hear are on the level of punishment and reward. That's not a level at which they make sense to me. I, d- I don't think that that's true. Uh, I could be wrong, but that's not a way that it works for me as a, as a kind of a moral stick that you're not enjoying this life because of something that you did wrong in a former life. I think that it's all, everybody's karma. I think we are all connected to each other. And that what happens is what happens out of relationship. And that what really we are experiencing are the effects of all actions in all times. The fruit of all karma since the beginning of creation. That's just my sense of it. So those are the three um, Brahma-viharas that rest in equanimity, that metta, or benevolence, and karuna, compassion, and mudita, sympathetic joy, are all reflections of a heart of equanimity. They, re- they depend on equanimity. When we don't have that balance in mind, compassion turns into pity, which is the near enemy of compassion. Instead of really feeling with the person, you think that poor person over there is in bad trouble. It's not a very good place to be a friend out of, and it's not a very good place to be a therapist out of, really. You think about uh, that person over there that I am helping. Really think about the ways in which people thrive in therapeutic situations because they sense that both people there are together having that experience and feeling it together. One person is only having that particular situation in their life. But if there's no sense of... Uh, there could be so much a sense of you got into this trouble because you didn't see clearly. So easy to feel one up from other people. It's a way of protecting oneself. because then it, You have to say, we're not protected. It could be us. It could be anybody. So the near enemy means it looks like that, but it's not that. So the near enemy of compassion is pity. The near enemy of um, the near enemy of friendliness is uh, attachment. Really, being friendly to people but hoping you get something back from them. We'll skip the near enemy of, of mudita. It's given in the text, but it's it's so it's given as exuberance, but I don't like the definition of it, so we'll leave it. The near enemy of uh, equanimity is um, indifference. Looks like equanimity, but it's not. He's saying you know, it's all karma. Everybody's response, whatever anybody's got, lawful. So there's nothing I can do. That that's a non sequitur. Everybody's lawfully having what they're having, but the what we do now makes a difference in terms of what people will be having. So if we do or we don't do makes a difference. So that's the Brahma Vihara teaching, you know. In a little bit. In the littlest bit that I can do. Do you have a question about any of that? 
maybe because I, I have won a lot of money. Mm-hmm. I, I, I was an undefeated champion on $100,000 derivatives. Mm-hmm. And the reaction <laughs> of my friends was just what you were saying. I think it's an issue of not of they produce the money. Mm-hmm. It's being chosen. Mm-hmm. Being validated. Mm-hmm. Being, well, if God really loved me or the universe really saw mm-hmm. how good I'm being, I would have been chosen. Mm-hmm. And to me, what, what's ironic is I've never had a problem. Money comes to me. Mm-hmm. If you want money, come to me. I, I, I mean, <laughs> that has never been an issue in my whole life. Finding happiness and all that. Mm-hmm. I laugh at people who think money will do it. Mm-hmm. Because if that were true, Sonny Von Dula would be one of the happiest individuals mm-hmm. on the planet. Mm-hmm. So, it, it, to me, what I have a problem with what you just been saying is, um, the inability of us to understand that we have all the power to get everything we need, mm-hmm. and that we've given it up by this ego that thinks I have to be giving something from the outside. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's my Wizard of Oz mentality, like you've always had to read. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't really want to get into a debate here, just, just trust me, because having been on the other end of having received that and having friends say, why doesn't that happen to me? Mm-hmm. Instead of rejoicing with me, so it was really fun. Mm-hmm. Imagine I was doing some acting at the time, and it allowed me, because I won this money, to continue with the acting. And that was that was the joy for me. It wasn't mm-hmm. that, oh, now I can go buy something or give something. Mm-hmm. I will do that anyway. Mm-hmm. And it's for people who don't think they can do that until something can, it's that locus of control, is it within you or, or outside? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually don't think we we, we could. When you said we don't have to have a debate, I don't know if I would have a debate because that, using your line about um, uh, what is it that we actually need, I I very much feel that um, a heart capable of equanimity and compassion is all that we actually need. So uh, I don't think that there's anything else that we need. I think that what happens is from time to time when we are challenged we get to feel that there is something that we need that would make us happy. But um, we got that, we might need something else to make us happy. Um, I've been thinking about that a lot recently, about just that very line about we have everything we need. We'll talk about that later this afternoon because there's a whole practice around that that I'd like for us to do together. Yeah. I could. I haven't decided if I want to do it right this minute. Um, and whether I want to be careful and do that in a... In a I, I want to be careful. That's, that's, <laughs> I heard myself say I'm making a decision about whether or not I want to be careful. I do want to be careful, so let's figure out what's the careful thing to do. Um, there's a thing about... Uh, there's a feeling in the mind when, that at least for me, when I am fairly relaxed and equanimous in, in my life, not just sitting in the retreat, but in my life, where things do not uh, upset my heart as much as they might ordinarily. It's a kind of a um, lightness of being where uh, uh, I'm less startleable. It's not indifferent, it's just less startled and therefore less reactive and less uh, less contentious in my heart, less resistant, 
happier, which sometimes, because I'm not so used to being that way, it's you know, development over years, feels just bordering on insouciance, just bordering on maybe too casual, like, how could you be so casual about things? The world's in an awful place, it is. In my mind, it's that, that, I don't think it's casual about, I, it just doesn't come up to me as a problem. I think I'm, I think I'm the opposite of casual. I think I'm anything, if anything, much more passionate. To the degree to which I am less frightened and less, uh, less overwrought, to the degree to which I have any more equanimity than I used to, I think I have much more passion. Um, I just, let's leave it that way because I want us to sit a little bit. Anybody have any questions before we sit some more? I'd like to do the following. If you, if, because I feel, I have a feeling that we're up. Are you awake? Yeah. I feel good about where we are. So I don't feel in a rush to have lunch. I would like to, because, no, because the energy gets different during the day, so I try to feel it and see what to do. I'd like for us to sit a little bit and do the other piece of the meditation that we did before. And I'd like for us to move a little bit, about 10, 15 minutes sitting. And I'd like for us to get up and do a movement practice, which is the same as going out and do a walking practice, except more focused. And we have Rasiko with us. And then I want to come back and talk a little bit, and we'll be eating by one. Can you hold out until? Okay. Let's do it that way then. Keep in mind that uh, what we did with our sitting before was we tried to develop composure in the mind um, in the sense of balance. I'd like for us to do a little bit of uh, wisdom practice. It's interesting to think about what kind of a what kind of a, a contemplative practice is going to be a wisdom practice? You can't say, ready, set, go, be wise. Uh, only have wise realizations now for the next 15 minutes. But I think this is a way to do it. Because in fact, this practice is the practice of developing wisdom through paying attention moment to moment, not in addition to what is happening, just as we did this morning, breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, breathing out, feeling relaxed, feeling present, that's what's happening. Under what's happening, in a sense you might say the generic, what's really happening, is that things are changing all the time. When you say to somebody, when I first heard from my teachers that one of the insights, primary insights of insight practice was that things change. They're impermanent. I thought to myself, everybody knows that. That's not that big of a deal. But we don't really know it. I mean, we kind of know it, but we forget it. We forget it when we're upset. We feel the upset will never leave. forget it actually when we're uh, healthy and feeling good. We forget that it's fragile. might not last that long. It's 
get it when we fall in love and we think it'll never end and we feel it when it ends and we feel we'll never fall in love again and things keep changing. One way to develop on some, I believe, cellular level, marrow of the bones level, the awareness that things keep changing is to notice moment to moment in contemplative practice that things keep changing. So sit in a way that's comfortable for you. For the first minute or so, let yourself just hear the sounds in the room. You can hear my voice. Then I'll be quiet. You can feel your body breathing. In these next 10 minutes, as I'm quiet, I'd like you to name for yourself in your mind what your experience is. Breath coming in, breath coming out, breath coming in, breath coming out. Pressure on my back, pressure on my feet, whatever it is. Sound happening. Coolness, warmness feelings in your body. It's like you also name for yourself the state of your mind. Sleepiness is here, or sleepiness was here, now it's not here anymore. Or a lot of interest is here. Grumpiness is here. Restlessness is here. Calm is here. Name for yourself what's true of your mind. A couple of minutes, as if you were logging into a log. What's the temperature of my body and my mind? What's the whole of my consciousness right now? And then keep on doing it. And then by and by, see if you can, in the way of Fellini movies, moving the camera back a little bit, notice for yourself not so much what's happening, but what's true about what's happening. And the hint is that what should be happening is that it's all changing. We sit from moment to moment in the middle of a changing field of body and mind sensations. Arising and passing away is happening in every moment. This is the key piece of wisdom that the Buddha taught. The way to have a first-hand encounter with that piece of wisdom.
eyes closed the whole time and we were moving. In fact, what we're practicing is developing that place of steadiness. That's the place of being able to see clearly, really understand deeply the things of the way they are. They just are. And that there's a way of compassionate response that is sufficient unto the moment. So what we're really practicing is finding that place in the middle of our lives. Each of us has complex and complicated lives. And the life doesn't get changed by practicing, but the heart gets steadied. I'm very happy that we're having this period of time, enough of it, for this morning, and I think we'll carry it through the day of really developing a, um, a familiarity with a place of resting mind. And for this little period of sitting, just perhaps for uh, five minutes now, see if you can make the whole of your experience, the breath coming and going, the thoughts coming and going, the liking and disliking, preferring and not preferring. Just let them all be there. This is a teaching from Nyosho Kempo, a contemporary Tibetan teacher. Rest in natural great peace. This exhausted mind, beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thought, like the resounding fury of the pounding waves in the infinite ocean of samsara. Rest in natural great peace. Everything is there, and the heart is sufficient unto itself. Don't have to do anything. Practice not doing. 
Rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thought like the resounding fury of the pounding waves in the infinite ocean of samsara. Rest in natural great peace. I would like to make a suggestion based on my sense of how the room feels, and you tell me if you're all right with this. Um, often, uh, in fact, in the last three of these Brahma Vihara days that we've had, we've taken, uh, I think, a half hour for lunch. Do we take a half hour? One hour. One hour. <laughs> ah. I have two things in my mind. I'm going to talk them out loud and it'll come to me what to do. One is, um, I have said in the other three, if you really came with someone and you really want to talk, really go off and talk with them because that's what you really want to do. And this room is beautifully still this morning. It's just really still in here. And the the equanimity teachings are, let it go, really. And can you? And discover the stillness of put it down. You know, we feel like doing a lot of things. Feel like responding, feel like reacting. And certainly, this is not about indifference or about non-response. It's about careful response that comes from a place of wisdom and real compassion. I'm thinking about whether it wouldn't be the wise and compassionate thing for us to each do for ourselves, to take a really quiet lunch and do this really as a retreat and not really have an hour now. We have a certain amount of energy I'm all right if we finish earlier. The energy peaks in the end of the day. And I know that people start, you know, it just goes for a while. Would you be all right about doing your lunch in a half hour quietly? 
as a retreat, we'll work the time around. And hold, be responsible. Here, this would be a great practice. Be responsible for holding this space for everybody else. There's a way in which you do it as a therapist, you do it as a good friend, you do it as a, a retreatant, where you hold the space quiet for everybody else by not behaving in a flurry. You know how that is? So other people get it. This is a place in which I can relax my mind. I don't have to do anything. So hold the space for each other for a half hour. In or out, it's not very pleasant out. You might want to stay in. So we'll start to gather back here at 20 past 1 and sit, and then at 1.30. I'll teach some more and we'll sit some more. We'll adjust the time at the end. But do this as a retreat. Hold the space for yourself. It's so rare to get a day of practice. So, um, I'm trying to think of just what order I want to say this now, because um, uh, I just had a lovely time, by the way. I was uh, interviewed by uh, uh, the Australian Broadcasting Company uh, for a documentary they're doing on uh, Buddhist practice in the West. and. Uh, if it's all right with you, they'll come in and take a picture of you all sitting here in a little while. And it's all right with you if they come in and we make history, we'll be on. Uh, and, uh, but it was a, a kind of, a, uh, it was an interesting experience for me because uh, I hadn't known that I would be. Uh, so, uh, it was a very good practice in the teaching of equanimity because just uh, just before lunch, I said we're all in such a quiet space, and, um, so we'll now just take a half hour. And uh, my plan was to go for a half hour and have lunch. And all of a sudden, here was Sally, who had been interviewed, and uh, said, "Okay, here are these folks. We want to interview you." And I love being interviewed, so it was fine. That wasn't a problem. Um, just, you know, I would think I'll fix my hair. And, uh, uh, and we talked a little bit as they were getting ready to interview, because uh, I said, uh, it'll be fine. I said, uh, because Vasika will lead some movement, and everyone will be, since this is an, uh, an equanimity day, but what we're practicing is, you know, it, whatever happens next, you just do it. And I said, everybody will be fine with it because everyone will understand from the great perspective of wisdom that uh, we're doing this from the point of view of uh, that our motivation for doing this is to uh, teach some really good things to the whole of the Australian viewing audience. And uh, at the same time, I also said, I need to be sure that that's my motivation as well 
not that I'm fixing my hair and looking for some lipstick because I'm going to be on Australian television and I want to look good or get known in Australia. And I said, well, you know, if I were going to be completely truthful, be about 90% to enlighten the Australian viewing public and 10% cares about whether or not my hair is combed and how I look. And um, I, th- I tell you that partly because, first of all, because it's true, and partly because I think we always have a mixed motivation. You know, that if we waited all the time to be sure that our intent was completely pure, I wonder how much we would do, ever. You know, that uh, everybody has a, the, the people who are therapists here all have the motivation really to help people. It's, a, it's, it's really what causes people to become therapists. Mostly my experience is that people become therapists because they've had some very good therapeutic experience. And that was my reason. And then they say, well, that was so helpful to me. I'll do it for other people. And also, it's a way of making a living. And also, it's a way of really teaching oneself. And it's all kinds of... Uh, it's, it's not a totally selfless endeavor. I wonder if anything is. So it relates to the note that somebody left on my seat also about, can you talk a little bit more about what techniques there are for staying present for people in pain or distress, um, not numbing out or becoming overwhelmed? I think that's really such an important question because it's really not only for um, therapist, but for uh, the rest of us as well in a life, how to be really present for people and not um, not be overwhelmed when what they're telling us frightens us, um, how to not numb out, to really pay attention, because it's really in the paying attention that people are uh, sustained. Don't you think that, you know, when you think about this is for people who are therapists and people who are not therapists. When you think about it, when you're with someone and you can really be with them in their distress, it's not because you had some good idea about their situation, is it? Because what kind of a good idea can you have? What can you tell people that would be solace when people have been really grieved in some way? The only thing I think, or the central thing at least, I'm not sure it's the only thing, but certainly the central thing that sustains people is the sense that someone else feels some connection to their distress. We say, Maybe it's a little bit of jargon to say we feel heard, but really, we feel heard as if someone else got it, don't we? Okay, in order to feel that we get it, we have to stay present for it. Here, I'll tell you a story. This is... This is um, this is a story about being a therapist and why we get it and when we don't get it. A number of years ago, um, a person came to see me. I will thoroughly disguise this story, of course, so anybody, who, anybody who's not a therapist here might not know that when you tell a story, you so thoroughly disguise it so the person themselves could be here. They aren't, and they wouldn't know it was them. But let's say it was a woman that I was seeing at some point who came to see me because uh, she had heard me teach just in, in a situation like this and thought I'd be a good therapist for her. 
And she came to tell me uh, about her sadnesses. And she had a number of things that were causing her to be distressed at, at that point in her life, some health issues, um, uh, uh, a uh, lover relationship of some years that had just ended, and the fact that one of her children was, uh, had left home and was in, in another city and really sounded from her report in a very difficult emotional and physical and, and to my point of view, hazardous state. And of all of the things that concerned her and that she uh, presented to me, the thing that seemed most of concern to me was the fact that her child was in such a difficult situation. But she didn't talk about the child in a difficult situation. She talked about the love relationship that she'd just been abandoned in and how miserable she was about it and how preoccupied she was with getting it going again. And I wanted to say, say to her, I was thinking, this is not what's important. This is what's important. But, you know, if you're a therapist, you know, you let people talk about what's important to them and the grief that they feel. So I listened and I listened. I saw a number of times and I felt badly because I felt that nothing was happening. That you feel when you're in a relationship with people that either it's there or it's not. And I could feel we were two people in a room but not connected. And in fact, after a couple of times, I said, you know, maybe I'm not the right therapist for you. Maybe you need to do some other modality. And she said, no, no, I need to be here with you. And the very next time that she came for an appointment, I, I happened to be up and standing at the window as she came around the corner. I could look out the window and see her coming. And I thought to myself, as she came around the corner, I was paying enough attention to my experience to feel my heart drop. And uh, I realized when I saw her, using a, li a mindfulness language, I realized I don't like her. That was really the truth. I don't like her. And at that moment, I was startled because, you know, I'm, I'm generally, I'm a kind person, first of all, and I have a good intention in being a therapist, but I caught myself really not liking her. And then I realized I don't like her because she frightens me. Really, we don't like people when they frighten you because she represented for me mothers who don't take good care of their children. I'm so in awe of therapists who work with parents who are abusive to their children. I think they have an incredible heart. It's difficult for me to work with people who don't see that as an issue. It's my own fear, the fear there are people in the world who don't take care of their children. As soon as I realized I'm afraid of her, that's why I don't like her, and by that time, she'd come in and hello and sat down. And what we did is we were sitting, and just as I am with you, and she was talking. And what I was doing was I was doing metta meditation. I was doing metta meditation for myself. May I be peaceful. May I be happy. May I be free of suffering. May I be at ease. May I be not frightened. And I felt after a while, and of course, I'm doing it quietly to myself. I'm listening to her. So... From her point of view, she wouldn't know I was doing anything. I'm looking and listening, and in fact, listening, because I've done so much metta, it can just happen just by itself. I don't have to be thinking about it. And by and by, I began to feel really at ease. And as soon as I felt at ease and at home to myself, I could really see her as she actually was. And I realized, she's in pain. She's in terrible pain. And then I could do that same loving-kindness meditation for her. May you be happy, may you be peaceful, may you be well, may your suffering, and meantime I'm not saying anything, of course, at all. 
I'm just sitting and listening. But the room changed. Now it is in a therapeutic encounter where suddenly the room changes and you know that the person that you're talking to feels heard. Because in fact you've heard them. And I felt that I had heard her because I'd come home to myself. I had been beside myself, in, so to speak, with fear that I had not noticed. And if I call it to myself, if I really am mindful, and I say, this is the truth, I'm afraid, then I come home to myself. Every time you tell yourself the truth, you come home. When you're there, there is the possibility that we'll connect with somebody in some meaningful way. And then they will feel it. And it's the feeling of connection, after all, that really is what sustains, what makes people able to go back out into their lives. Is that not your experience? Is that a so that's really partly the answer to that question about how do we manage to not numb out. Part of it is the intention to be present, and then the other part of it is the practice of continually paying attention to what's true. You know, when I finished that interview with the television people, I, I thought to myself when I had finished, I had a good time, and I knew you were here, and I knew you were doing the movement practice with Vasika. And I also knew when I uh, got up from that half hour of talking that we had been together in such a quiet space all morning. And I was kind of whizzed up from that. Mm -hmm. And I said to myself and to them, take a breath, slowly. Uh, it's really always the same practice of notice what's the mind state. Keep the intention of what would you like to be? Where would you like to be? I'd like to be present and I'd like to be balanced. And then it's as simple as taking the next breath. Say, I'd like to be here. I'll tell myself the truth. I'm breathing in and I'm breathing out. The truth is always the way that you get back into this space. I'm breathing in, I'm breathing out. That's as true as anything else. I'm excited. Maybe I'm very excited. Now I'm calming down a little bit. Okay, now I go in, now I see these folks. They're all doing the yoga, they look good. I feel fine, take a breath. It's a running readout on how am I really. And then we live in ourselves, we inhabit our lives. You know, one of the best things that anyone ever said to me, it wasn't one of my teachers, it was one of one of my friend's teachers. I don't even remember which one of the Spirit Rock teachers it was, who said the best thing that any of their teachers ever said to them about practice, the best practice instruction was, is, it's your life, don't miss it. Isn't that good? I really love that. So now, take a breath in and out. Would you like to sit for five minutes and then we'll talk? A little bit, five minutes sit. Five minutes sit doing the the summation of the three practices that we practiced this morning. Practice to develop composure, practice to develop wisdom, practice to develop resolve, which is really what one we did just before lunch. So starting with being just relaxed and alert in your body, Letting the breath come in and out, 
just at its own rate, not fixing it in any way. Not only does it happen all by itself, but really, really understanding it, that it does happen all by itself, without a separate self, turns out to be one of the key insights connecting us to each other and to all beings. You can let your attention float with the breath Arising and passing away, arising and passing away. You give yourself the instruction to feel the whole of your body. You feel yourself sitting, however you are, on the floor, on a chair, with eyes closed. We have a kind of feedback from our body that lets us know what position we're in. listening, even to the sound of silence. Keeping in mind that mindfulness practice uses the breath, uses the body, uses hearing, uses every dimension of our experience as a meditation object. Really to teach the mind how to pay attention so that ultimately it's not about breath or body or hearing or feeling in any particular way. Ultimately, it's about being able to pay attention so well that we're able to recognize most profoundly what's true. And come to some place of wisdom and peacefulness and equanimity. So we'll sit for a few minutes.
As we said, I'd like to add one more meditation instruction. Really from the question that someone asked over the lunchtime about techniques for returning to a place of uh, presence and awakened attention. I think this is determination to persevere, to try to clear the mind, to try to be present, to try to stay awake. rests very much on um, the faith, the trust that awake presence is the best place to be. That awake presence is ultimately peaceful, ultimately a happy place to be. That in the middle of our lives, in the middle of the world, in the middle of everything that's happening, it's possible to really be present to it. Not only possible, but the best possible way to be. It's really a faith that's based in the direct awareness of the third noble truth. Peace is possible. So here's the instruction. As you sit, just all smile, it's good for you. It's a way of uh, signaling to yourself that you uh, have had in your life experiences where you've known at least for a moment, probably more, probably more than one time, that peace is possible. It's not that elusive an awareness. comes probably in a time that there may have been so much ease in your life or so much contentment or a moment of such serenity where everything in your life, however it was, was acceptable. Everything in the life of the world, however it is, was acceptable. And it may have been in a time of such joy that everything, no matter how difficult, was also acceptable. But in a moment of knowing that really the heart has the capacity to do this whole life, that the quality of spaciousness of heart that's really the place that describes equanimity is really the characteristic, the fundamental capacity of the human heart. So see if, if you give yourself that directive, remember a time when everything was really just fine. It's likely that you find some moments, maybe more, 
Maybe almost find some moment. That counts too. See if you can feel that moment. Or smell it or taste it or see it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.